My name is Jen Peterman, and I'm going to be reading the scripture reading this morning. Thanks for standing. It comes from Acts 2, 22 to 36. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's a thrill and honestly a little surreal to be here because I attended this church as a student. Now, it was last century, but um, I think it still counts. But it's great to be here. For those of you who are um, somewhat disappointed that we are veering off a little bit from Nehemiah, I I feel that. I've really appreciated uh, the, the care and the wisdom that the pastors have shown us in leading us through Nehemiah because it, it shows how, um, how in tune they are with where we are, with the moment that we are in as a community, that the last couple of years have unraveled us. And, uh, but yet there's hope, and we're looking forward to the future in hope. And yet, that future is still uncertain. And so it's really appropriate that we learn from Nehemiah the idea of rebuilding and seeing what can happen. But I want, I want to assure you that this morning, as we look at Acts 2, it's coming out of that same soil, the same uh, idea of an unraveled past, an uncertain future, Because usually, if you're like me, I think you are, we're from the same tradition, 
We tend to read Acts 2 as this disembodied text, as if it, it doesn't actually come out of any kind of context. It's, it's kind of like the Magna Carta. It's just, you know, it's one of those texts you put on the wall, and it, it, it's true, and it's iconic, but it's hard to remember that it comes out of real and true life. Peter stands up, and speaking for the apostles... He's bearing witness. But what happened with Peter, their last, their, their previous three years, the previous three years of the apostles, make our last three years look like a carnival cruise. I mean, remember, you know, we all know this, but you think about it, they're, they're fishermen minding their own business. And then this, this carpenter comes along and says, I am the one you have been waiting for, that your ancestors have been dreaming of. I am he. Come follow me. And they do it. They see mind-blowing things. They, come, they become convinced that he is the promise that they have been waiting for. And then before their eyes, he's destroyed. He's tortured. He's murdered. And they actually, in some ways, are complicit that they deny him and they flee. And then a few days later, he's alive again, and then he's back with them. And then, one chapter before what we just read, he is taken up before their eyes, up into the cloud. I mean, talk about an unraveling of their past. And now they're standing knowing that they are called to lead into a future. But that future is pretty uncertain. And yet this sermon, Peter's sermon, proves to be the bedrock for this whole community of how they will lead into the future. So that's why I think it's really important for us. It's helpful for us. It's the same soil, the same idea. So before we dive in, let's take a minute and let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your grace to us to be called and to be able to respond, to come and join with your people to celebrate your presence, your rule, to sing songs exalting you with a full heart and to be able now to hear your word. So we cry out to you and ask that you would again give us ears to hear, give us hearts that would respond. We look to you. We need you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was here for, I think it was called Youth Sunday. It was the Sunday that um, the, the younger people led us. One of the things that really impressed me was the interviews with our graduating high school seniors. Because there was one question that was asked, and it was something to the effect of, what's your favorite Bible verse? Now, when I was a senior in high school, I probably would have panicked, and then I would have said something like, John 3.16, which is always the right answer. I mean, you know, I'm not, 
I'm not discouraging hope in John 3.16. But what impressed me about all of them is, is they said something like this. Well, my favorite verse in this season, and that phrase caught me, because it, what it showed is that they are looking to the Scriptures and they're applying the message of the Scriptures for now, for the issues of the season. They're looking to the Scriptures for wisdom. And then if you notice, most of the passages that they chose as their favorites, they spoke to issues of uncertainty, anxiety, even a sense of chaos and how God is stepping into that. And so, again, it was like a window into their lives and into all of our lives, this sense of chaos and uncertainty. And it was their, it was their favorite passage. And so, again, as we look to, to Acts 2, and we are getting there. So we look to Acts 2. I wonder if we could have, if someone at the time could have said, Peter, tell me, what's your favorite Bible verse? And I think there's a chance that Peter may have said, well, in this season, my favorite passages are Psalms 2 and Psalms 16. Because those are the passages that he goes to when asked to say, what is going on here that we're seeing? The fodder for Peter is the message of Psalm 2 and Psalm 16. That's the core of his sermon. And here's what those two passages have in common. They are laser-focused on the arrival of the Christ, which is the, the thesis of Paul's sermon, Peter's, Peter's sermon. Jesus is the Christ. So I'm going to tell you my thesis right up front, and it's this. That idea, that truth, that Jesus is the Christ, was the reality that anchored the apostles and anchored the early church to be able to lead out of an unraveled past into an uncertain future. They came back to it over and over. It was the foundation for them. And it will need to be the same foundation for us as a community. As we are leading into an uncertain, a hopeful, but an uncertain future, we should learn from the apostles and from the early church and cling to this truth that Jesus is the Christ. Let me show you what I mean. If you have a Bible or you have an app with a Bible on it, Acts 2. This is the middle. We're jumping into the middle of Peter's sermon, verse 22. And this is what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Notice what Peter says, that God was attesting to Jesus. What it means is that God was, in a sense, testifying. God was standing on behalf of Jesus when he was doing these mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. What Peter's saying is that 
The, the whole point of the signs, the wonders, the miracles is that God was in essence taking a, a large sign and pointing to Israel and saying, He is the one. He is here. I am giving you all this evidence. I am attesting to you about him that he is the Christ. And Peter says, and you saw it. The problem is they rejected him. Peter says that they rejected him and they did it uh, by crucifying and killing him by the hands of lawless men. And perhaps the greatest of news is this, that God rejected their rejection. That God, in a sense, said, look, this issue of the Christ is not an election. I have appointed the Christ. So you can deny, you can murder him, you can try to put him aside, and God reached into history and raised him back up and presented him again. Here is your Christ. And so God raised him up. And this is what Peter says in verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Why? The ESV says it this way, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now this is an interesting question that Peter anticipates by what he's going to say. He's, he's going to answer it in verse 25. But the implicit question is this. Why could Jesus not remain dead? Why is it that it was impossible for Jesus, it was possible for him to die? Why was it impossible for him to remain dead? And again, if you're like me, and we share the same tradition, Here's what we do for that answer. We sidestep Peter. And we go go straight to atonement theology to answer this question. Now, it's right. I'm not denying atonement theology. We go to Hebrews, we go to 1 John chapter 2 to answer this question. And it's the right answer. It's not Peter's answer, but it's the right answer. The answer is, that we go to, is because Jesus was offering in his own blood the payment for our sins. And that by God raising him from the dead, what God is doing is saying, in effect, paid in full. I receive the payment. There is now no more payment. If Jesus is still dead, he is still paying for our sins in some way, and we have no confidence that that payment has been accepted. But one of the reasons that Jesus could not remain dead is because God has raised him to give us the confidence that he is our substitute. Absolutely right and glorious. And we should probably just say amen and bring Adam up and sing that. But again, that's not Peter's answer. And by sidestepping Peter, we miss an equally astounding claim. Look at what Peter's answer is. Why is it that Jesus couldn't remain dead? Verse 25, here's the reason. Because David said of him, 
I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh also will dwell in hope. And then here it is. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Peter's answer is the reason that Jesus could not stay dead is because the Messiah said that you, God, will not allow me to be dead and to remain dead. You won't allow me as the Christ to to decay and to stay dead. And so... What Peter's doing here is basic math. He's saying this plus this equals this. The Christ said, God, you will not allow me to remain dead. Jesus is the one whom God did not allow to remain dead. Therefore, Jesus is the Christ. How do we know that Jesus is the Christ? One of those reasons is because God did not allow him to stay dead. And Peter anticipates some in the, in, in the crowd that, that would object and say, wait a minute, that was David speaking. That wasn't Jesus. To which Peter says, well, why don't you come with me on a little field trip to the cemetery? And he says in verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. David, Peter essentially says, friends, David has been experiencing the decay of death for a while now. So it's not possible that David was saying this. This is the Christ saying this. Well, then how do you explain it? He says, well, David was speaking as a prophet in verse 30, 31. He foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades. And he did not, nor did flesh see his corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So there it is, Peter's claim. Jesus is the Christ. So let's take a time out for a minute. Because we need to remind ourselves what it means that Jesus is the Christ. Because again, if you are like me, we're so familiar with that idea. We think of it as Jesus' last name. We need to remind ourselves, for this crowd that is hearing this, what did that mean? How did that land that Jesus is the Christ? And I think one of the best ways to do that is to go back very, very quickly, because this could take a while otherwise, but to go back to the narrative, to the, to the form of the story that we have been given. The biblical narrative is it's a story that in its structure has been copied over and over. Think about the ones who have done it most blatantly in the last 15 years. Think about Marvel. Every Marvel movie that we go to follows the biblical storyline which is this. We start with some, some sense of the ideal at the beginning. There's an ideal that's worth preserving. That's how every Marvel movie starts. That's Genesis. 
The ideal is this perfect environment without chaos where God dwells with humans, sharing his life together, and where humans have a distinct purpose and calling within his rule and reign. It's the ideal. Well, here's the other thing that happens in every Marvel movie after the ideal is kind of laid out. There's the introduction of an evil. And that evil is so pervasive that if it's just left unchecked, it is going to wipe everything out. So you think about every Marvel movie, that, that is what's happening. The reason they have to deal with the evil is because if you don't deal with it, it's going to, in fact, it has wiped everything out in one of them and they had to put it back together. In the biblical storyline, that evil that has to be dealt with is referred to as death. Sin is the means to it, but death in all kinds of forms. It's almost like a catchphrase for destruction that will destroy everything if it's left unchecked. And then the other thing that happens in every Marvel movie that follows the biblical storyline is this. There has to be a hero. And the role of the hero is to deal with and destroy the evil and to return and even perfect what the ideal is. And so what happened in Israel was this very expectation because of Revelation, because of the Old Testament, because of the prophets. And they were looking for a hero to come who was going to deal with this evil. And this, over time, this hero took the form of the king. The Israelite king was the one who was supposed to be the hero. The problem is that 90% of them were flat-out awful, unheroic. In fact, they led the other way until God said, I promise you I will give you the perfect king. He will resemble David, but he will be a super David. And he will do all that is hoped for and required. And so they began to look for this one, the son of David, who would be the perfect hero. He was referred to as the anointed one because that's what you did with the king. You anointed the king when you established him. The Hebrew term for the anointed one is Messiah. And when you transliterate from Hebrew to Greek, Messiah becomes Christ. And so the Christ is the king who will come as the hero and who will deal with evil and destruction and death and restore all things. And so Peter stands and doesn't just say, this is Jesus with the last name that we throw around. Peter is standing here and saying, this one, this Jesus, he is the anointed one. He is the one that you have been longing for, have been waiting for. He is the appointed one to come and to rule. He is the king through whom God will work and bring about on earth what he desires. And he is here. Verse 32, this 
This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He says that David said of him, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then verse 36. Peter's like one of those lawyers in those old black and white movies where they just put together all the evidence and then they make this grand pronouncement to the jury at the end. That's what verse 36 is. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is the Christ. He is the king. He is the anointed one. He is the established ruler on the throne through whom God is working in the world and doing what he wants to do. And so Peter has just thrown down some lightning bolts to this crowd. So it's no wonder that they turn in horror and say, Brothers, what do we do? And then you read of the revival that breaks out. Well, we might ask in a different spirit, but a similar question. In light of this, what do we do? Because we are people who have come under. We have had the grace to see Jesus as the anointed one, to see him as king and ruler. We've come under his authority by God's grace. But now, as we are stepping into the calling to follow the Spirit into this recreating, into a new future, as Christ Community Church, what do we do? Well, uh, let me offer two metaphors as suggestions, as places to start. Two pictures that hopefully we can grab onto. The first picture I want to give is that of those old scales. Not the digital type now, but the old counterbalance scale. And you always needed some some weight on this side that was the reference point. And I'd suggest that for the apostles, that's how the understanding that Jesus is the ruling Christ functioned for them. It was this counterbalance. Because you, you think about their future. I mean, Peter is is definitely announcing triumph. But he's not triumphalistic. He's not standing there and just like, look, nothing else matters now because Jesus is the Christ. And so I'm just going to go do whatever I do, but disconnected from any sense of reality. That's just not what happened. And it wasn't easy. They faced unbelievable chaos, unbelievable challenge. In fact, right after this is where Peter is arrested and put in jail. What's interesting in the narrative is that there's there's an angel that appears and lets him out, and then Peter comes to the gathered church. And you remember there's a girl that hears Peter outside the gate saying, hey, let me in, and she goes and reports to the church. Hey, Peter's outside. But here to me is what's fascinating. They said, no, it must be his ghost because they had assumed that Peter had died. 
They're not looking for some miraculous rescue. They're assuming this is the way things go now in this future. Peter was caught. Surely he's executed. And so the future for them was far from certain. And yet, they held this announcement, Jesus is the Christ, as true and real. See, they had a couple options. They could, considering their circumstances, they could just say, well, you know what? Circumstances don't matter because Jesus is the Christ. That's all that matters. So this reality is so strong that let's just, let's just disregard our, our, ourselves with anything that has to do with the, with the life that we have to live. That's not what they did. On the other hand, they didn't do this way either, where they said, well, Jesus being the ruling king, that's a spiritual reality. And that doesn't have anything to do with what I'm facing in life today and what we as a community are facing. And so, yeah, this is great, but this is what we have to deal with. What they seemed to do as a community was to hold those in balance and to say, look, we've got some real challenges that we have to face, but Jesus is the ruling Christ. And let's remind ourselves of that. And it has a, a sense of counterbalancing those realities. If you read through the rest of Acts, that's what they did. Every time they faced some kind of scenario, they brought the counterbalance forward. The content of the sermons was Jesus is the Christ. When you read through the letters, it's remarkable how many times that phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, is used. And I don't think it was just that the authors are following the style guide that says, well, you have to change up the name. You can't just say Jesus every time. I think they were actually using it as a way to bring that counterbalance, to bring his title. Remember, even by throwing the phrase out there, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we read over it quickly because we're used to it. But for those, in those first century communities, it was an astounding claim that rooted their lives. And so we've got to do whatever it's going to take to have Jesus as the Christ be that counterbalance. Because we're probably going to face some challenges in the future. The second metaphor I want to suggest is that of a ladder. And I have to tell you, this one is a little bit hard to swallow. This is kind of like that proverbial medicine, you know, that's hard to choke down, but it's really good for you. And that's this, that when you read through the New Testament, the way that Jesus was established as the king serves as the template for how God works among his people. God tends to not just allow, but almost lead into trial and difficulty so that he then can enter in and bring about life. Too often we think that Jesus, as the one who is our atonement, doesn't just take our sins on our behalf, but, but he takes our difficulty on our behalf that he is the one who took it so that we ought to be able to just skate through life. 
And actually, the template is exactly the opposite. We, I think this is true of humans, but especially as good Americans, we think that the way that ascension happens is by, we all even know the phrase, it's by climbing the ladder. We regularly increase. We move ahead more and more and more. We even see that as a sign of God's blessing. Well, one of the things that got Jesus condemned and rejected as the Christ is because he intentionally walked down the ladder. The Messiah was supposed to show up for the righteous. He was supposed to show up and rescue those who were obeying the law, those who were being faithful to Yahweh. And, and the sinners, they were going to experience judgment. And Jesus came and said, I did not come for the righteous, I came for the sinners. Jesus actually spends his time not with the righteous, but with the sinners. And at the time, the people said, he's going the wrong way on the ladder. I don't think this is the Christ. And then the Christ is supposed to come on this great charger of a horse and wipe out the empire enemies that were oppressing Israel. And Jesus shows up on a donkey, and he is actually conquered by the empire. He's crucified on a Roman cross. And he takes the ultimate step down the ladder until his hope, which is expressed in Psalm 16, is realized that God steps in and raises him and exalts him. Jesus' pattern was to go the opposite way, hoping that God will enter in, show his power, and exalt him to the position of the Christ, which is exactly what happened. And that is the template in the New Testament. It's what Peter experienced. It's what the apostles experienced. When Paul had to defend his own apostleship to the Corinthian church, this is what he did. He said, look, I'm going the wrong way on the ladder because God delights in weakness. He loves to enter in and raise up. So look, I'm following Jesus' template, not the Corinthian template. When, Jesus is, or when Paul is trying to encourage the Philippians in their own struggles, he says, look, you follow me because I am following Jesus' template. I'm being conformed to him. I am suffering. I'm moving toward death in hopes of being resurrected. And so this is the way that it works. Look, that doesn't sit well with me as an American. But this is the template of how God works in the realm of the Christ. And if we don't experience this reality in some kind of way, I, I am not a prophet. I'm not trying to say that some kind of catastrophic doom is coming. I'm just saying as the Spirit leads us to great work in this community, Let's not be discouraged. Let's not be alarmed by difficulty. There probably is going to be relational stress. There's probably going to be external pushback. 
Who knows what else will come? Let's not just assume that, oh, this is from God, so, but let's at least pause and consider the latter and say, could this be that the Spirit is leading us in this very template where what we're hoping for is that God is going to enter in, do what He has done, do what He did for Jesus, do what He did for the apostles, do what He did for the early church, do what He's done for communities throughout history, and do it for us as well. Here's the announcement. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus has been established as our ruler. Christ Community Church. It's a declaration of his title. It's a declaration of his rule. It's a declaration even of the template that we hope for to see God work. Christians throughout history have held to this announcement. And now it's our turn. And so as we step in, as we follow God from an unraveled past into an uncertain future, may we also declare to one another, Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, we are astounded that we live in an age where we can see clearly and know that Jesus is the Christ, where you have given us grace, eyes to see that Jesus is the Christ, given us hearts to respond, not in rebellion, but in joy, to long for more and more submission. Thank you for your grace to us. We rejoice in the name of the risen, anointed one, Lord Jesus. Amen.